Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Visual Politic Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Whistler. This is the audio version of a video that originally aired back in February, the 8th of February, 2019. The title was, and is of this podcast episode, Why is Singapore the richest country in Asia? As always, as this was video first, I'm just going to jump in whenever I'm needed. So any quote attributions or explaining charts, stuff like that, or any translations. So I will do that. For now, let's just roll into it, and I really hope you enjoy the video. In 1963, when it became independent from the British Empire and after its economy was devastated by the Japanese occupation during the Second World War, Singapore was nothing more than an agglomeration of shanties. It was a place where every bathroom and kitchen was shared by several families. Things at the economic and social level, they were hard, and they weren't very different at the political level either. The truth is that Singapore's beginnings, they weren't all that promising. See, at first, Singapore united with Malaysia, but the romance, it didn't last very long. Just two years later, in 1965, and after several political and ethnic clashes with the aristocratic and extractive Malaysian government, Singapore was expelled from the Malay Federation and was de facto forced to declare itself independent. And at this point, the challenge that faced this small territory was absolutely huge. Singapore, it was poor. It had less than two million inhabitants and it lacked any natural resources. It wasn't even self-sustaining in terms of food and water. But hold on a second, because the story that we all know, it's a bit different, isn't it? I mean, today, just five decades later, Singapore is an independent country, and this city-state is one of the capitals of the world and one of the richest territories on the planet. Check out this graph. It shows the GDP per capita between 1966 and 2015 of Singapore, Spain, Chile, and Mexico, where Mexico and Chile grew from around 3,000 to just under and just over $10,000 respectively. Spain grows from $10,000 to $30,000 and Singapore from around $3,000 to $50,000. Since 1960, Singapore's economy has grown by more than 7.5% every year. We're talking about a huge growth rate that has allowed Singapore to experience the fastest development process in the history of mankind. Today, this city's per capita income is much higher than the United States, and it is more than twice that of middle-income countries like Spain, and it's almost four times that of Chile, which is considered the most prosperous Latin American country. And you really can't say that this isn't quite amazing. Now, the question we can all ask ourselves is, well, how did this tiny city-state achieve such a huge amount of economic growth? Well, let's take a look at that. Take off. Folks, this entire story, it's got one clear protagonist, and that is Lee Kuan Yew, the autocratic prime minister who governed Singapore between 1959 and 1990. I travel around the world often, and uh, you know, people don't know that I come from Singapore, and they treat me uh, as a Chinese or as a Chinaman in the old days, as they used to call them. <laughs> now, few people would have bet that this country would end up having a bright future. And folks, Lee Kuan Yew's first years leading Singapore, they really didn't bode well. As Secretary General of the Popular Action Party, a party that belonged to the Socialist International Party, this Prime Minister initially flirted with so-called import substitution industrialization policies. This is a political approach that blindly commits to protectionism as a way to achieve development. This was something that was actually 
particularly popular throughout the 20th century in Latin America. And actually, in a way, it still is. Really, in his first years of government, Lee Kuan Yew was closer to Argentine politicians than to anyone who supported the free market and globalization. However, folks, unlike what happens in Latin America, in Singapore, they soon realized that this type of policy was by no means the best way to escape poverty. That's why, starting in 1965, a very different approach was launched. A political and economic commitment that transformed Singapore completely. They opened up to the global market. When most third world countries denounced the exploitation of Western multinationals, in Singapore, we invited them. That's how we achieved growth, technology, and the know-how that boosted our productivity more than any other economic policy could have done. Lee Kuan Yew. Now, Singapore hasn't been anything close to a prototype of an orthodox libertarian state where the government doesn't interfere in any economic activity. On the contrary, the Singaporean government has played and still plays a very important role. But before we carry on, let's just say that they did it in a very different way than we're used to. For example, as was the case in old Europe. Things are changing quickly and we're having to adjust and keep up. Due to technology, globalization, we've had to anticipate what's happening. We have to help companies and workers to adapt. Lee Hsien Long. In Singapore, the government didn't try to take over the larger sections of the economy, nor did they attempt to regulate everything down to the smallest detail, nor, of course, did they try to expand public spending and taxes. Quite the opposite. In Singapore's case, we can basically think of it as a state company, or better yet, a city company. You own the company. That's right. You that is, Lee Kuan Yew understood that Singapore needed to attract capital and professionals so that the country could grow and develop. And with an imperfect competitive environment between economies and the heavy intervention that exists in the countries we live in, the state can play a key role. And it can do so with policies that always favor competitiveness, investment, and the attraction of companies instead of bureaucracy and welfare. That's why the Singaporean authorities developed institutions to guarantee legal security and efficient management of the city. They promoted economic sectors through public-private collaboration, drew up an ambitious productive infrastructure program, and most importantly, promoted savings. And that's not all. All policies were designed within a strict budget stability framework and always, always with the mindset of integrating them with private agents, something that rarely happens in countries like Spain or Italy or, of course, Argentina. All right, so allow me to explain. It isn't as much about expanding a port or a road, but being able to integrate an attractive institutional framework with services that cause companies to settle in a country. They want to encourage companies to invest so they can increase their productivity. But let's put it another way. How do companies compete in the market? Well, they do that by offering better conditions than the competition, right? Well, Lee Kuan Yew, he understood that in our world, competition between countries is not very different. Therefore, perhaps the best way to see and understand the keys to Singapore's success is to view the city-state not as a country to be used, but as a service provider in a competitive industry. In Singapore, the government understood that the community itself, the city itself, was an asset, and thus, well managed, it could become a competitive advantage. 
But to understand this better, let's take a look at some concrete examples of the policies that Lee Kuan Yew set on the table. First objective, despite having a city with a very high population density, turn it into a non-chaotic, unnoisy, and unpolluted place. To do this, the government imposed traffic taxes in 1975, so today traffic in the city is subject to tolls that are charged electronically to all users on the road. That is, to all vehicles. That way, they managed to impute the street's maintenance costs to the real road users. They managed to avoid traffic jams and stop the buildup of pollution. The result of this approach has been that today, Singapore, despite having a very high population density and being one of the economic engines of the world, has very fluid traffic, and in addition imposes maintenance costs based on each driver's use of the road. That is, if the benefit you gain isn't greater than your toll, which is the maintenance cost of the road itself, then you can leave your car at home. And if the benefit is greater, then you have roads through which you can move quickly. It's really a pretty smart system. Of course, to make this all possible, Singapore developed a fantastic, very efficient, and affordable public transportation system. Another much more controversial measure due to its paternalism is forcing all workers to invest a quarter of their salary into a rigid national savings plan that's also managed by a state organization. With this program, the island's government gets workers to accumulate savings with which they can pay for health services, educational services, and their own retirement. And while that happens, the state gets the capital it needs to invest in projects in and out of the country that are understood as being essential for the city's competitiveness. In a certain way, workers don't only become users, but also investors in this city company. Of course, these types of interventions where the state maintains clear leadership are complemented by a policy that favors free enterprise and one of the freest regulations in the world in terms of capital, goods, and worker circulation. Folks, in Singapore, taxes are low. For example, someone with a $60,000 income pays just 5% income tax. Tariffs are practically non-existent, there's no minimum wage, public expenditure accounts for approximately 18% of the GDP, and if all that weren't enough, Singapore's economy is considered to be the second freest in the world. See, in the world we live in today, being peripheral or being central doesn't depend on your country's physical location. It depends on whether or not you have a room and an economy of knowledge. It depends on technology. It's the only thing that can explain why countries like Singapore have a much better education system than we do. Albert Rivera, MP of Spain. The result of all this is that a country that, until a few decades ago, was very poor, is now one of the richest countries in the world. And don't think that it's just a matter of economics. Singapore also has some of the best universities, with students at the forefront of subjects like science and mathematics. Further, their healthcare system is excellent, there's basically no employment or crime, and their expectations for the future are extraordinary. For example, in the Human Development Index produced by the United Nations, Singapore currently occupies the 10th place above countries like Sweden, Iceland, France, and Finland. The negative side, and there is one, is concentrated in its political system, which, although it's still evolving, is still very restrictive of civil liberties. In Singapore, prison sentences are very high, censorship is a normal part of life, and different behaviors to the norm are usually not well regarded. 
So I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. This was originally a video that aired on our YouTube channel. If you'd like to get stuff right up to date as it comes out, please do search Visual Politic. That's politic with a K, one word, in YouTube, and you will catch all of our videos. Also, if you like this, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We really do appreciate it. And as always, I'll see you next time.